Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg. This is your community radio station here in Louisville, Kentucky. We broadcast out of the top of the Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM, and we live stream to the world. Anywhere you go, you can pick us up at forwardradio.org. And no matter where you are in the world, we want you to be a part of this station, too. Uh, We rely entirely on listener contributions to keep us on the air. So if you like what you're hearing and you want to chip in a few bucks to keep us on air, it only takes $20 for a whole day's broadcast. So go to FordRadio.org and click on Donate Today. And if you are in Louisville want to become uh, a broadcaster, you can do it today. You can broadcast and podcast with us here on Forward Radio. Maybe you've got an issue you want to cover you think is not getting enough coverage in the mainstream media. This is the place for you. This is Grassroots Community Radio, and you can get become a part of it at ForwardRadio.org. Well, what we do on Sustainability Now each week is bring in exciting folks from around the community, sometimes even from outside of Kentucky, and excited to have with us uh, some folks who are really doing great work in sustainability. And the reason for this uh, occasion today is that uh, the Kentucky legislature has started its 2021 session already. And it's a short session. And if we want to be engaged citizens, now is the time to be paying attention, right? Uh, and I know this can be overwhelming. The Kentucky legislature is is hard to follow sometimes. That's why we need a friend like Lane Boldman, executive director of Kentucky Conservation Committee, keeping her finger on the pulse of what's going on in Frankfurt. Welcome, Lane, to the virtual studio with me. Hey. Hey, Justin. How are you? So glad to have you here. we got another guest, too, I'm going to introduce in a second. But let me just uh, wrap up my thought is that KCC is putting on their annual legislative summit starting this Friday. January 15th, and we're going to talk all about it, Um, but this is a great time to think about maybe uh, registering for that uh, and taking part in the uh, very different, a very different vis- virtual legislative summit that's starting this Friday the 15th. The other guest with me today is joining us from Virginia, and she is Misty Bowes. Welcome, Misty. Hey, thank you so much for having me. She is executive director of Wild Virginia. I can't wait to learn more about this organization. Uh, I grew up in Virginia and enjoyed its wilderness to a great degree, uh, as well as its urbanity. There were lots of great things about the state. Uh, And so we're going to dive into the work that uh, Wild Virginia has been doing to keep Virginia wild, right? (laughs) You want to tell us quickly, Misty, about the organization and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So Wild Virginia started just over 20 years ago as a feisty group of environmental (laughs) activists um, trying to protect our national forests from some pretty heinous logging that was going on at the time. Um, And they were mostly students from different universities around the area, mostly UVA. Um, And they just they just saw the things that were happening as so atrocious and really wanted to do something about it. And I hope that we are still to this day a group of very feisty activists caring a lot about <laughs> our wild places and wild um, wild lands. But now we're a statewide organization. We don't just look at the national forests. We actually think about the whole state and the connectivity of that state. So we'll be talking about that a little bit more. But uh, I wanted to just kick off the idea of, you know, expanding our our reach because these 
these ecological problems have so many connections, right? You can't pick one piece out and, and solve these big problems. So I'm glad to be here with y'all from Kentucky because we need to be working together on these issues. And I look That's forward to learning. That's right. More. That's right. This is part of solidarity. And, you know, if we go far back enough in history, uh, Kentucky was a part of Virginia, right? So <laughs> we're reuniting yeah. the states. Uh, so, so the reason we're having Misty on is she is one of the speakers who will be joining us during KCC's legislative summit. Right, Lane? Tell us about the summit this year and how different it's going to be and how it's going to also do a lot of the usual work that the summit does. Yeah, so the Legislative Summit is something that uh, Kentucky Conservation Committee does every year. Usually it's a day-long conference um, sometime in the early part of the session where our members, supporters, the general public can get an opportunity to learn about the bills that are being filed or we anticipate, ways to learn how to be a better citizen advocate, how to talk to your legislators. Now, the challenge this year is because of COVID, obviously, We thought it would be tough to ask people to sit for a whole day long on Zoom, you know, especially on the weekends when people are already really tired of Zoom. (laughs) So we broke it up into three 90-minute sessions on three consecutive Fridays. Oh, very cool. So, and it's starting this Friday the 15th, and then it'll be on the 22nd and the 29th as well. And uh, every time it's... 11 a.m. to 1230. That's a good time to do it. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're trying and, and we're going to address different topics, although we like to overlap topics so that people can kind of cross pollinate uh-huh. and learn about things that may they may not know about that's happening in the conservation world. Yep. So we hope that people will attend all three sessions. And if I have to be at another Zoom meeting on a Friday at 11, is it going to be recorded so I can catch up? Well, it, it will, but we, we ask people to register the plan on attending. Yeah. We will probably post it later on our website. And since this is only a 30-day session, and right. they've already passed bills oh all my the way gosh. through. <laughs> really? Urge people to get in, get early, and uh, get educated. Okay, so this is the week. Go to kyconservation.org. Get yourself registered for the summit. KCC relies on donors donations as well, but I believe you're doing it free this year. Is that right? Right. We're offering the conference free this year. Actually, because it's core to our mission, we, we only have charged in the past just to cover meals and right. uh, logistics of the of the venue that we're having it at. But since it's virtual, we don't have that cost this year. So our goal is just to get as many people interested in conservation issues, listening to what's going on and hearing the details of the bills, and hopefully be part of following up with teams that are interested in continuing the conversation on some of these issues. Nice. So uh, the more the merrier. Great. So the first session on the 15th is going to be a general assembly overview talking about citizen engagement skills and and citizen lobbying. But then in the second session on January 22nd, that's where we're going to dive into land conservation and biodiversity issues. And we're going to pull in Misty to help us out there. Right. And then on the last one, on the 29th, is when we're going to talk about clean energy and climate change issues. Now, these broad topics have always been sort of core to KCC's mission, right? You want to talk a bit, I gave a real brief about what KCC is, but could you tell a little bit more about them? Yeah, the Kentucky Conservation Committee has been around since 1975. We're one of the longest running conservation organizations, but we don't handle conservation in the way that some groups do, as in like core land conservation. People sometimes mistake that. What we do is we provide services to follow the legislature and to follow state government. 
And so if you're a conservation organization and you really don't have that capacity that would be offered by a full-time lobbyist, we provide those services for you. We help uh, probably a dozen partner groups oh, yeah? in the conservation sphere and solar groups and clean energy groups. And then we also have our own members. And then we work collaboratively with a lot of coalitions. So we just provide dedicated lobbying services. And then we have a board of really talented people on our board that uh, have expertise in a lot of conservation issues. And so between the board and the two lobbyists that work with KCC, we follow the legislature. We Mm -hmm. follow the bills each week and uh, make determinations about them and try to put them into plain English so the public can understand them and act on them. That is huge. Uh, (laughs) As a member of the public who's not a lobbyist and, 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 and tries to not follow legislature too, closely because it can be just mind-boggling to me. I really appreciate those skills and, and services that you offer us. And and it's a great way to plug into conservation issues, environmental issues in the state without having to, you know, be there watching watching the news and filtering for it, you know, that kind of thing. This is a great well, service that anyone can learn more about at kyconservation.org, even if you can't attend this great summit that is done every year. Uh, lots of great resources there for people interested in in keeping up on legislation. And wow, I can't believe legislation has already passed for this year. This Tell us about a real quick outline of what this session, how long it goes. Uh, it, it just began last week, right? It only began a Tuesday. Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, Tuesday. And they've already changed the calendar again. They've expanded. Oh. The, the, for, generally, the first part of the session is, is only uh, a very short time, about a week or so. And then they take a break for three weeks and then they come back and finish up in the short session. They usually finish up, well, they, by constitution, they, they have to finish up by the end of March. Oh, okay. So very short, especially when you have that three-week gap in between. Wow. But they've already, because they wanted to push through some bills very quickly, they've already added some days to the calendar in this first part of the session. And so they are now, uh, they met on Saturday to finish up their first round of bills. So they've gotten them all the way through. And uh, then they're going to be meeting Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday before they take that three-week break. And then they are going to reissue the second half calendar. So so we don't quite know how that's going to end up just yet. But that's why it's so important for people to be watching news yeah. on our website, because we stay up late at night and on Saturdays watching through the whole session to see what they're doing. And you can follow on social media too? Yes, we have a Facebook page, we have a Twitter feed, and we have a newsletter. Uh, every week we send out a blog that lets you know what changed during that week and what bills passed during the week and which ones are new ones that dropped. They've already dropped uh, well over 100 bills, probably as much as 150 bills so far. Oh, my gosh. Uh, just in four days. Oh, wow. So they've been keeping us on our toes. <laughs> For sure. Misty, does any of this sound familiar? I don't know how much uh, you're deep in Virginia politics, but man, Kentucky politics keeps my head spinning. How about you in Virginia? (laughs) Yeah, I was just, uh, you keep seeing me nodding there. You know, we're having changing calendars and yeah. And I keep thinking, you know, and I'll get to this in a bit, but you know, it was a group just like Lane's in Virginia that made Arbo possible. And, you know, they helped us you know, reconcile all the things that were happening in the session, you know, knew when to activate, who to contact, politics in ways we could not keep up with. And so, yeah, I just kept thinking how important a group like yours is yeah. to, to help all of us, including other organizations, know what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And how much of your work in, in Virginia is related to the state legislature? And I guess a question for both of you is, 
How often do these issues go beyond the state? And we're really talking about federal issues. Yeah, well, this year, uh, and I'll let Misty chime in next, but, but this year, you know, we aren't in anticipating a whole lot of environmental issues at the state level for a couple of reasons. First off, because of COVID, the legislature only passed a one-year budget last year. Last, mm. last session was their budget session. Mm. So they're going to have to be in these sessions, this very, very short, tight session, not only to deal with COVID continuing issues, but also the budget. And so that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for extra issues, but bills have been filed regardless, and we will continue to comment on them and hope that we can help build momentum around them. But because of that, we put in the conference this year more about federal issues, and that's Mm. what Misty can tell us more about what's happening in her state and it also ties to some initiatives that are happening on the federal level. So we're, we're trying to give a more comprehensive picture since uh, we may not have as many environmental bills locally this year. Sure. And I don't know if we want to talk already about, you know, habitat connectivity and why it's so important. But, you know, there there's a lot of movement around that issue at both the federal and state levels. Um, and Virginia is just one of many states that's it's been lucky enough and had the right time, right people, right place to really, really capitalize on this energy um, that we're seeing around wildlife corridors. But there is a federal bill, too, making its way through oh. for several years now around wildlife corridors and really directing funds towards those efforts. And we don't really it's hard to imagine what is happening at the federal level right now. <laughs> but, um, but one of the things we can say is that this effort has had wide bipartisan support across both sides of the aisle, which is really great right now um, to hear about anything that can do that. So we're pretty optimistic about the issue. We don't know what it'll look like in the end, but, you know, the issue getting a lot of attention at the federal level, hopefully, to support our state efforts around these issues. So many times these things are tied together. So there's an initiative called the 30 by 30 uh, Conservation Initiative to preserve 30% of lands for climate change by 2030. That also includes uh, connectivity aspects. And as Misty said, there's federal legislation There's a whole network of people looking at piecing together land for Eastern Corridor. That's been going on for quite some time. Our friends at Kentucky Natural Lands Trust and the Nature Conservancy in Kentucky have done an amazing job with connecting lands. And part of what we're looking at now is what have the other states been doing and how can we tie that to the other side of what's going on, which is dealing with the infrastructure it takes to not just address the lands, but address wildlife crossings that affect uh, highways and and other areas. Well, I'm glad you all have started turning to this topic. I wanted to take a deep dive into it, but let me first remind our listeners that you've tuned in to Forward Radio with me, Justin Mogg, here on Sustainability Now. We're talking with a couple folks who will be involved with and presenting at the upcoming Kentucky Conservation Committee's Legislative Summit every Friday, 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. throughout the month of January, starting this Friday the 15th. I'm speaking with Lane Boldman, Executive Director of KCC. You can learn more about them at kyconservation.org. And our guest from Wild Virginia is Misty Bowes. And I didn't mention their website yet, but you can learn more about them at wildvirginia.org. So yeah, I want to take a deep dive into this whole topic of safe wildlife corridors. And of course, Appalachia is a particularly important part of the country to talk about wildlife corridors, right? So for our audience who aren't familiar with wildlife issues and why this is so important, tell, tell me a little bit about what these wildlife corridors are and why they need protection. Well, I'll let Misty go first on that one. Can I share? Um, you know, one of the things that makes me just so excited about this issue 
And the reason I think we just said it attracts so much bipartisan support, you know, everybody gets it because we're talking about nothing less than the, you know, connective tissue of our planet and our ecosystems. We're really talking about the circulatory system of our planet and how wildlife and people get where they need to go safely. And, you know, when you explain it like that, everybody gets it, you know, everyone's hit that deer on the road. Everyone's, you know, seen wildlife crushed on the roadways. Everyone's had that scary moment where they weren't sure it was going to happen to them, or maybe it did. And so we've all had interactions where we could see how those connections were broken. And that's because we haven't been thinking of the landscape through the eyes of wildlife and through the other creatures that inhabit this planet with us. And so when we don't do that, we have a host of problems, you know, the smallest of which is hitting a deer on the road, the largest of which is the breakdown of our ecosystems. And so as we begin to think through the eyes of wildlife and think through the eyes of ecological connectivity, we begin to repair those connections, both for wildlife and for our own safety. Yeah, and the important thing, uh, the reason that this gets bipartisan support is that not just for people that are hunters that, you know, hate to see their game killed on collisions with roads or environmentalists, but it's a cost issue. It's a money issue. The highway collisions are incredibly expensive. And so I think the reason that, one of the reasons that Misty and her group has been doing such great work in this area is people see that connection. And other states have been doing this same kind of exploring as to how to do better connectivity and also a deal with the transportation issue. Uh, New Mexico, New Hampshire, Mississippi, Oregon, Wyoming, Washington have all been working on legislation really? to address this problem. And and what are the main legislative sticking points about this? I mean, uh, what is what legislation, what policy is needed to sort of change this situation with transportation and wildlife collisions <laughs> problems there? Well, it's always funding, right? Funding always is the big sticking point and people understanding the concepts and having a vision mm. for it, which is why we're excited to have Misty be part of our program because she's actually been able to get this through in Virginia. Okay, um, and I'd love, I would love to hear more about their plan and hopefully we can educate our lawmakers and our members about, you know, what a good model plan looks like. And our panel will also have lawmakers, one lawmaker from each side of the aisle as well, because nice. uh, they want to learn more about this. And, and we think this is a very bipartisan issue. Yeah. So Misty, tell us about this Wildlife Corridor Action Plan. Yeah. So about four years ago, I started having conversations with, you know, various folks throughout the state in my role as ED here and saying, you know, I studied habitat connectivity in Australia. That's where I did my Ah, master's. Cool. And and they were talking about, you know, sugar gliders getting across roadways, you know, (laughs) possums getting around, you know, kangaroos doing their thing. That was all cool. But I came here and I didn't hear a lot of conversation around that idea. And so I was really curious to see who was thinking about these things. And the more I started asking, the more I started peeling back this huge interest in habitat connectivity, finding ways for both aquatic and terrestrial wildlife to get where they need to go safely, right? There's so many barriers to both. And yeah, so- I was just thinking about like dams as being the classic like barrier for wildlife. Yep. And I guess it, if it's related to shipping on our Ohio River, you know, then it is a transportation issue. Because I was going to ask, like, this isn't just about cars and even trucks hitting wildlife, right? Planes collide with wildlife. Uh, tr- does it happen with trains too? I imagine it does, right? So this is all yep. area, all sectors of transportation are affecting our wildlife, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, uh, so uh, as I was going to say, you know, we sort of 
before we knew it, we'd started a group that was a road ecology group looking at the interactions of wildlife with roads. Mm. And while that sounds narrow, um, the reason it's such a big deal is we have so many roads. Virginia <laughs> has like the third largest road network state owned in is the country, right? you know? So if you think about an animal trying to get across that, an ever growing, ever busier network of roads, that's where you're going to see those interactions, right? Again and again and again. Well, and so the Oh, go ahead. It's funny because when I think about accommodations to wildlife and highways, I think about way out west where there aren't as many roads, but the one, few that there are are really problematic. Uh, and they have done some creative things I've seen out west, but I don't hear about it here much on the East Coast. Yeah, I'm actually originally from Wyoming and I'm very proud of that's where that's I'm thinking of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very proud of that. But, you know, out there you can see long distances, you can see see the, you know, the, the herd coming, you can imagine where they need to go. Um, those big infrastructure projects make a lot of sense out there. And they do here too, but there's stuff we can do in the East that's really simple, very inexpensive and, and won't cost us a ton. And will get us a lot of a quote unquote bang for your buck, if you want to put the pun there. But my, my colleague, Bridget Donaldson, she's a researcher here. She works for VDOT, which is our Virginia transportation department. And she's been doing research for years on just simple fencing interventions that can help funnel wildlife. So just imagine you have an underpass that's already there and wildlife might use it. They might not, they might cross the road. They might use the underpass, you know, up in the air. But if you put a little bit of fencing on each side of that underpass and you actually funnel them into that underpass, it's relatively inexpensive considering, you know, how much road works cost. And she's found up to 92% reductions in crashes over her two-year study at these sites where she's put these in. So, wow. you know, stuff like that doesn't mean we have to spend millions of dollars on a big old overpass, but we can start looking, hey, where are the underpasses? Where huh. are those crash hotspots? Where can we do pretty simple things that could get us a lot of safety for our drivers and a lot of benefit for our wildlife. And I know whenever I pass her study site and I see those fences on either side of the road, I just breathe a sigh of relief because I know I'm not going to hit anything. That <laughs> <for the laughs> stretch of road, you know, and it, it feels good, right? And people like that. So now help me understand, when I think of an underpass, I'm usually thinking of another piece of our transportation infrastructure, like mm -hmm. it's a rail line or it's another roadway or maybe it's a river. But what kind of underpasses pre-existing are we talking about that wildlife can use? There's all kinds of stuff. And of course, it depends on the size. But, you know, there's box culverts that were put in place ages ago to help wildlife get, you know, or to, to help livestock get back and forth between farms. There's old underpasses just underneath the road for a stream, for instance. Wow, but okay. if you put a little bit of a ledge in there, then, you know, terrestrial wildlife can use it as well. There's all kinds of these, these existing places out there that we can map and identify, which our collaborative is doing. And then look at which ones are big enough, probably to help, you know, the larger wildlife get across, which ones interact with known corridors of wildlife movement. And we can do that now and then make smart choices about where we want to put in some interventions, possibly things like fencing, or maybe we just need to make the substrate better or, or a little bit quieter. So wildlife are more likely to use mm. it. Um, and simple camera traps, you know, can get in there and see what's been using it and what does oh, use it cool. after you've. But in the fencing, yeah, and camera traps are fun. I love them. Yeah. You can see all kinds of things at night. That's so right. That's if, one of the things we've done. Yeah. If we funnel the wildlife, we're going to see them more if we're if we're smart about it, right? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But there's more than that. Oh, I'm sorry. Just the other thought I had about when you were describing these fences, I can imagine that could be done in a really ugly and possibly destructive of the forest way too. So, But I'm sure there's... There's some kind of smart fencing that can be used that is less visible to humans passing by, but works for the animals or something like that. 
Yeah, it's not terrible looking, which is good. Um, <laughs> it looks it looks like part of the landscape. Um, and what's cool about it is there's actually these little cutouts called jump outs. So deer can actually jump out, but not back into the oh, road. Oh, really? So a little angled, yeah. And a little angled at the top, so they're less likely to jump over. And, you know, a little maintenance on the fences. But again, when you're thinking about the difference in cost between a big, big overpass, something that's going to be sure. a huge infrastructure project. But, you know, I think Lane was talking about this too. We need to be thinking about where wildlife are going to go too. You know, climate change is happening. And, you know, so we need to be mapping along with the Nature Conservancy and some of these awesome folks that have done that work to to think about where are the corridors of movement now and where are they going to be in the future? Um, and we're trying yeah, to think okay. about and I, and I think this is a fairly new conversation for some regions, you know, which is great to hear that MISTI's made so much progress because, you know, we've had some initial conversations with the transportation cabinet, you know, just kind of explaining the goals of what we're trying to look at and then assess, you know, where can some research be done? Where, where can some funding be found for the research? Uh, how to get the universities involved in this so that we can get a better idea of um, the cost benefit. So we want to start that conversation, kicking it off with this conference, but also simply just to support the work that the land conservation groups in Kentucky have already been doing because, um, you know, there's people may not be aware, but there's three major um, land corridors that are in the works. Um, Kentucky Natural Lands Trust, as I said, has done an incredible job and Nature Conservancy on the Pine Mountain Wildlife Corridor. And that uh, also is in partnership with people down in Tennessee. So there could be a, a long corridor uh, that also ties into a, a whole Eastern corridor that the Wildlands Network is mapping out. And and we'll, we will also have a guest from the Wildlands Network at the conference. This session will be on the 22nd. But in addition, you know, we've just been starting that conversation. And there's also, of course, the corridor down at Bernheim that ties to Fort Knox. That's also been land acquisition that's been in the works. And of course, a lot of your listeners probably have been probably getting a little more attention to that one than. Yeah. And uh, then there's also a corridor that's in the works out in Western Kentucky as well. So, you know, the land conservation is just one part of this. And now we, we are trying to stay ahead of the parts of this that tie to legislation, the federal legislation, what states are doing. We don't have any state legislation in Kentucky yet, but we've certainly been looking at the different models. And that's why we thought it was timely to have, you know, Misty on and Wildlands Network on and then get people really thinking about it and maybe get some work groups formed. That's great. Yeah, I think this is really important timing. And I want to help our listeners understand, too, like the necessity of these corridors beyond. It's not just about a deer, like making a decision one day. I want I wonder if the grass is greener on the other side of the road. Right. This is really a, an important part of ecological function to keep connectivity between the the increasingly fragmented wildlands that we have left. Right. And wildlife depend upon these corridors because they have to migrate. Wildlife and plants, you know, like the utilities, for example, of course, we have a situation at Bernheim, but also all of the utilities are really recognizing the importance of how much they bisect contiguous lands. It's become a problem because if it disrupts pollinators, there are some species that are starting to become endangered. If they become endangered, the rules will change for how some of these utilities cut through lands with their corridors. So it's in their best interest to, you know, come up with best practices, support pollinator gardens, support these kind of crossings. So 
It's just a good holistic approach to preserving wildlife and biodiversity and helping our contiguous lands, but also, um, you know, prevent any interactions that may, you know, cause problems later for necessary infrastructure. I was so excited to read about your pollinator corridors and that just inspired me to think about what's possible here in Virginia. And and that's what's so cool about working across state lines. We've learned a ton from other states by no means are creating the wheel here when it comes to what's possible. And I think the more we talk to each other and the more we learn together, the, the better we're going to do regionally, right? Because this is a big regional issue. I'm speaking today with a couple of folks who are going to be participating in the Kentucky Conservation Committee's annual meeting and 2021 Legislative Summit that kicks off this Friday, January 15th. It's virtual this year and it's free to join. You need to register at kyconservation.org and you can join the sessions every Friday throughout the rest of January, 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Lane Boltman is Executive Director of KCC. She's on the line with me along with Misty Bowes, Executive Director of Wild Virginia. And I feel like we didn't quite finish the story of how uh, how you all participated in getting the Wildlife Corridor Action Plan Bill passed in 2020. So talk a little bit more about that, uh, about this process and, uh, and, and what the bill is ultimately going to lead to. Sure. Um, I want to give a huge shout out to the Wildlands Network, who has been doing good, good work all over the country, um, working on both state bills and the federal bill um, to protect wildlife corridors. And they approached us in Virginia about trying to work on some legislation because they knew that we were, we had this Wildlife Corridors Collaborative already. People kind of like what Lane's doing, working together, thinking about these issues, getting things done on the ground. And then, you know, they said, we think you're, the time is right for <laughs> Virginia. And we said, it is? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and sure enough, it was. Um, we started working together with all of our partners that we'd already identified. A lot of folks inside agencies, you know, wanted to see this kind of work done, but they can't advocate, right? But they can give input. And so there were good people who were able to help us figure out what might make sense for the agencies to do. So before we knew it, we had what was uh, called the Wildlife Corridor Action Plan. And what that plan would do would help us um, require the state government to identify first and then protect wildlife corridors across the state. Huh. So we're not as far along as Kentucky. We hadn't identified what we all agreed on as the most important corridors. And so that's the first step. And then after that, they'd have to come up with a list of priority crossing projects on our roadways. Because again, roads are such a big fragmenting problem yeah. in our state. So it's going to require the Virginia Department of Transportation to come up with a list of priority projects. And then as well as any time the Department of Transportation actually does a roadworks project, they either retrofit an existing road or build a new road. They absolutely have to con consider wildlife corridors now in their environmental reviews, which oh. is a big change. Yeah, and how they did business. And an example of this is, you know, we kind of had a similar bill a while ago where they had to consider bikes and pedestrians uh -huh. in, a, in, in more of a serious way than they had in the past. So now we see roads that have more bicycle infrastructure. I so love it. Our hope, right. So our hope is now when they're thinking about wildlife, when they build roads, that's going to change what those roads look to begin with. Because um, it's sure cheaper to do it up front than to go back later and yeah. think about these things. Uh, the thing we don't have yet is a lot of funding for this work. So we have our task cut out for us um, in the next session. We're looking for ways to really pretty, get some funding attracted if we can. I know this is a tough year. And then also figure out how to integrate this plan, this wildlife corridor action plan into all the other state plans. 
VDOT's transportation plan, all the different plans that, that manage our state forests. And so that's our next stage of our work this year is trying to make sure it's not just a plan on a shelf, but something that gets done and gets on the ground. So this funding that you need, is it is it just for the infrastructure we're talking about or is it also for the studies? So luckily, um, you know, and we didn't know <laughs> going into this, that's kind of the story I want to share. Like, we, we knew enough to be dangerous, but certainly not everything. <laughs> um, and that's why we need groups like Lanes, right? We were lucky enough to, to hook up with good partners like the Virginia Conservation Network here that does kind of work similar to what y'all do. And, you know, they were able to help direct us to the right patrons who could help us design the legislation. Wildlands Network, again, provided lots of support. Um, and yeah, from there, it was just a lot of meetings and trying to figure out, you know, what does this look like? What kind of money do we actually need? Um, and again, we relied on our good agency partners to help us understand what could be done within existing budgets and what would be a real big lift for agencies to pull off. And, wow. and we didn't want to put anybody in a position, right? We didn't want to say, hey, you need to go do this big thing without any money, right? Yeah. That's the last thing we wanted to ask. Um, and so we were able to ask for what was reasonable um, and that folks really thought they could achieve with. Yeah with limited budgets and, and that's where, where we are. And, and the important thing to add is uh, the reason that these, um, this kind of legislation has been popping up all over the country now is, is it's not just an expense. It's actually a, a savings when you right. do the numbers because, right. Because of the expense of dealing with all the traffic collisions. So, uh, but getting that data together and getting those people connected to each other, that challenge at first in trying to figure out, um, you know, get the information that, that people need to make good decisions. Misty, I'm, I'm glad you brought up cyclists because I am one. And we're often called the uh, vulnerable road users in planning, right? And I'm, I'm delighted that we're expanding the definition of that to the many, many wildlife that on my bicycle, I get to see their bodies on the roadways. I rode my bike all the way across the country when I was 15. And that was one of the biggest lessons of the experience, right? From my front door in Arlington, Virginia to Seattle, I saw so many carcasses all along the way. And it really brought brought home for me the impact of our choices in transportation on on nature right we think about it as pollution but it's also really really direct contact with wildlife in a lot of cases and so i want to see if we can drill down we've talked about some of the sort of charismatic megafauna right like the deer the foxes getting them what about things like salamanders and frogs i mean there are seasons in kentucky i have been to land between the lakes in seasons when the entire roadway is covered in frogs uh this is such a tragedy to me but and i know there's you can't fix everything but these kinds of smaller animals considered in this planning now that has to be done in virginia yeah, um, so we have, I think, I'm sure Kentucky does too, a, a wildlife action plan for our state. Uh, our Department of Game and Inland Fisheries um, is the one that ma manages that. Um, and so basically any species that's on that list, which is sadly way too many, um, <laughs> gets considered. Yeah, and, and more every day. So salamanders, yes. Fish, yes. Wow. Um, it's, a, it's aquatic and terrestrial, um, wow. which is great. Um, and I was going to mention an example here in Virginia. Uh, we have a spot north of Charlottesville where people were actually carrying salamanders across a road every year during their breeding season yeah. because they knew that's where they were. And yeah. out in the dark and the rain and the cold is when salamanders move. And that's when those awesome volunteers were out doing their work. Wow. Um, they call it the bucket brigade for salamanders. Yeah. <laughs> you guys probably do this too. Um, I've, but I've that seen that. It's fascinating. 
It's so cool, right? And they're beautiful salamanders, big, you know, spotted salamanders. Um, but they were getting mashed on this roadway every year until these volunteers took interest in action. And then they actually worked together with the developer in the area to put in salamander tunnels um, under that development. Really? And so, yeah, so it really does matter if people pay attention to what they know, the places they know. Like you say, you saw it on your bike. That matters to you now. And it's something you know about. You know where these things are happening. And that kind of data and that kind of interest from citizens really does make the difference between whether these places get protected or not. So so thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. You know how we have sections of the road where you have to reduce your speed during school hours? I'd love if there was like sections of the road where you had to reduce your speed during a breeding time or something for salamanders. <laughs> What was it you guys had an antler alert? I just loved that. That was so cool in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, we had an antler alert um, uh, uh, during breeding season. Oh, yeah. really? And and I, I certainly have heard a lot from people. Um, you know, last month particularly since it was um, deer season, uh, people are saying we've got to do something with all these deer in the roadway. Well, I mean, that's when we can, you know, that gives us the opportunity to bring up this larger conversation about you know, some good planning. And certainly the, the controversy that's been happening at Bernheim, it, it, it's also a matter of, you know, who's thinking ahead on these things so that we can do proper planning and not have conflicts. Yeah, yeah. The other, the other group of animals I was thinking about was birds. And what can be done to help protect birds from our transportation issues? Is that part of the planning at all? Great question. So we work with um, a wildlife hospital. It's one of our partners um, and they see all the crashes, right? Uh, I think it's birds are hit on a certain side of their head when they've had conflicts with cars because they're always coming in from the side. I think it's oh, the left wow. side. So they can tell for sure, right? That's what happened in all these cases. So, you know, there's simple things, you know, keeping, you know, your trash off the road obviously doesn't attract rodents, which then attracts raptors, um, planting species that don't attract prey species for birds. But, you know, also, you know, just protecting migratory corridors, right? So good forested blocks for these species to nest and roost and come up, go about their business is really important. And while that's outside of the transportation interface corridor, it, it fits into that larger landscape question of how we protect wildlife corridors. So it is not written in specifically to our plan, but that is definitely a next step I'd like yeah. to see. Oh, I'm glad you shared that. That's interesting. And and when you talk about these larger corridors, I mean, that's where the importance of Appalachia comes in, right? Um, talk a little bit about why this corridor is particularly important. Yeah. Do you want me to take that one, Lane? I'm happy to. The Wildlands Network has what they call an Eastern Wildway that they are working on, which you know, it's just one way of conceptualizing our wildlife corridors, but it's a really important one. And it looks at the land all the way down from Florida up to Maine and says, okay, well, how could we really connect the East in a, in a real serious way for wildlife mm -hmm. movement? Um, and it's a beautiful map. It's fairly vague on purpose. Uh, we don't <laughs> want anyone to feel like they're being targeted by a wildlife corridor, but it does show the big movement blocks that would be really important for a host of species, whether it's birds or, you know, deer or salamanders, you name it. Um, and so I yep. call back that a lot for when I'm talking to legislators and we actually give that map out to all of the patrons who sponsored our bill and because it helps us all imagine what a connected, real connected East Coast could look like. And that's exciting. You know, wow. it really isn't a connected Appalachia. Really, what would that look like? And a lot of people see a lot of trees out there and they think, oh, everything's fine. But but it's not really when you start looking at all the things that are carving it up and fragmenting it. And that's why most species are suffering from habitat fragmentation is one of the number of threats. And, the, and this, this also ties into the other big issue that will be covered in the summit, which is climate change, right? Climate change is only going to exacerbate these challenges for wildlife. Talk a little bit about that connection, if you would. 
Yeah, I mean, the more that wildlife is connected, the more resilient it is. Mm. Uh, the more yeah. that, that you have large parcels of land, the more it can be, you know, sustained from pests, from fire. I mean, you certainly saw that with the fires out west. I know that some people think that's because there was just too much wood on the ground. But also, you know, when you have large swaths of land, it, it's naturally more resilient. It holds more moisture. It It holds more carbon. And so... All of that uh, helps sustainability and climate change. Um, you know, we've been looking uh, uh, along other uh, pieces of legislation we're looking at is, is healthy soils and how soils sequester carbon. So all of this is important and it all requires planning and forethought. Um, so, so getting people to think of these systems as a full connected swath rather than uh, breaking them up into smaller and smaller pieces uh, that that all of impacts resiliency. Misty, do you want to speak to, a little bit to climate change in uh, in Virginia and maybe what some of the impacts you've already seen are? I mean, there's there's parts of Virginia that are going to be underwater. We know as 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 sea level rises as our glaciers melt, uh, but it's not just the coast that's impacted. I, you're going to see some impacts all the way up into the mountains of Appalachia, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, you know, has helped us get this issue moving forward is that, you know, we're seeing extreme flooding every year all throughout the state. Right. And one of the best things you could do is protect um, to protect wildlife corridors is to protect aquatic corridors. So those stream buffers. So the same stream buffers that are going to help wildlife get where they need to go are also keeping us from flooding. And so that's a really easy way to kind of bring this issue home to all of us, no matter whether we live on the coast or if we live up in the mountains, we're all experiencing this stuff. Um, and so, yeah, wildlife tend to like to move along aquatic corridors. We tend to like to live along them <laughs> and we all need that buffer for what we need. Right. So it's, it's a great chance for us all to, to get what we what we need from the same um, same same activity. So that's the one way of thinking about wildlife corridors. Yeah. And I'll just add that, you know, the, the wildlife corridors along the Appalachians um, is so important. That's why I'm so excited about the work that Kentucky Natural Lands Trust has been doing and Nature Conservancy has been doing, because that's the headwaters of a majority yeah. of the, the drinking water for Kentucky. And a lot of people don't realize that, but, but the headwaters of most of our major uh, waterways all come from the Appalachian Mountains. And so starting with clean, uh, viable headwater areas um, are enhanced by forest land, um, by healthy ecosystems. Uh, it, it enhances how much water goes into the streams. So it's all really important. Everything ultimately is connected, but people don't always see that connection. Well, it, we're, we're just about out of time. I feel like we're just scratching the surface, but hey, we have a reason to reconvene. Uh, thanks to the Kentucky Conservation Committee's annual legislative summit, we'll be hearing from Misty Bowes from Wild Virginia again on January 22nd from 11 a.m. to 12.30. Lane, who else will be joining that panel about land conservation and biodiversity on the 22nd? Yeah, the land conservation panel uh, will also include Greg Abernathy from Kentucky Natural Lands Trust, so he can tell us all about the great work that they're doing firsthand. And it'll also include Susan Holmes from the Wildlands Network. And then we're also going to have a couple of uh, guests from the Senate and uh, uh, joining us for that panel. And 
uh, each of our panels is going to have uh, representatives and senators joining us so they can hear what's on people's minds and so they can tell people how they can be better advocates, citizen advocates for the issues they care about. And again, there isn't any legislation that we know of yet directly related to those wildlife corridors, uh, but it's on the horizon. Is that right? Well, uh, it's certainly something that KCC has been um, uh, keeping an eye on, working on as far as who we need to be talking to, who uh, we need to be connecting with. We're, we we work with the Wildlands Network, as Misty does, um, and also watching legislation that's happening in other states because Kentucky's not always the quickest to pick up <laughs> on new things um, respectfully. And, uh, and so when a state like Virginia manages to succeed, it certainly makes the path easier for us to have that conversation in Kentucky. So, so it's definitely an issue that was brought to our attention by the Kentucky natural lands trust at first. And, and the way we work is, is uh, we, try to represent our partner groups as much as possible on legislative issues. So, uh, so they flagged this issue for us. And so we, we've been digging in for the last several years on it now. This is terrific. I'm excited to learn more about it. Thank you so much, Misty Bowes from uh, Wild Virginia for, for joining us. Again, you can learn more about them at wildvirginia.org. And best of luck, Misty, in implementing uh, and finding funding. <laughs> Let me know when you have some money. Right. I will send it your way. <laughs> we're, we're, we're relying on your success, so we better help fund it, right? <laughs> and thank you, Lane Boldman, Executive Director of the Kentucky Conservation Committee. I look forward to seeing you again Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1230. People should go to kyconservation.org to register. Thanks so much, Lane. Thank you all. All right. Stay tuned, everybody. Coming up in just a second, your community action calendar. Lots of things happening this week to get involved in making sustainability a reality now. So stay tuned, my friends. Now I was a child. I walked these hills. Drank from the streams and heard the whippoorwills And I ran through the fields just as fast as I could Through rocks in the creek, up the deep green woods Climbed up on the mountain, there as fresh as could be Let my Kentucky soul fly free, fly free Fly free down from the Ohio to the big sandy and up in the mountain holler down to the big city. Gonna let my Kentucky soul fly free. Now that I'm a man, I live in the big city. It's a crazy life, don't bother me. Deep down inside, I'm still a country boy You know I gotta get back to where I was born Down by the rivers, where I long to be Let my Kentucky soul fly free Fly free, fly free Down from the Ohio 
my friends, is the sweet, sweet sounds of Apple Latin here on Forward Radio. This is Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mong. Many thanks to Apple Latin for giving us permission to use their great local music in the podcast versions of our programs, which are archived, and you can find them at forwardradio.org. Go there to become a part of the station. Donate today to keep us on air throughout 2021 and volunteer today. You can become a programmer here at the station or you can get behind the scenes and help us out too. We're always in need of volunteers. This is all volunteer run community radio. It's time to get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out and get ready to take action for sustainability this week. A lot going on, especially on Tuesday, January 12th. My, my, my. I hope you're ready to dive in for sustainability. Tuesday, January 12th is Kathy Hinko Day. We're celebrating 40 years of housing advocacy by the amazing Kathy Hinko, who has recently retired as executive director of the Metropolitan Housing Coalition. So you can join us uh, online at 11.30 a.m. on Tuesday the 12th. The Metropolitan Housing Coalition invites you to celebrate super housing advocate Kathy Hinko and support the MHC mission. We'll gather on Tuesday at 11.30 a.m. to celebrate Hinko's retirement following 15 years as executive director and 40 years of housing advocacy work Join local officials, community members, colleagues, and friends as we recognize Kathy's contributions to fair housing and affordable housing issues in Louisville and her commitment to racial justice and social justice across our community. As we come together to celebrate Kathy Hinko and her work for housing justice, we come together to continue our commitment to the work for fair, accessible, and affordable housing for all in our community. Finally, we come together to raise funds to support MHC's mission and to continue Kathy Hinko's legacy of housing advocacy. Individual tickets for this great event are $50 per person. You can find the link to purchase your tickets at facebook.com slash MHC Louisville. Now, also on Tuesday at 4 p.m., it's the next in the Urban Agriculture Coalition series of public orchard pruning winter workshops. Get your cold weather gear out and let's prune fruit trees together. Proud Forward Radio community partner, the Urban Agriculture Coalition, is helping neighbors to prune the community orchards throughout Louisville again this year. Come out and learn to prune fruit trees and help maintain the trees in our community orchards. They'll be providing pruning tools. You're also welcome to bring some along if you've got them. Uh, and you can sign up for as many dates as you like at tinyurl.com slash orchards2020, although it's continuing into 2021, right? So Tuesday, the 12th, from 4 to 6 p.m., they'll be out at the Common Earth Incubator Farm, Common Earth Garden in Shively. And then again on Saturday, the 16th, from 2 to 5, we'll be out at the People's Garden there at 44th and Bank. And it continues into next week. Uh, there's uh, dates at the Americana Community Center uh, in on January 20th, out at the Portland Orchard Project on the 24th and 30th, and it ends at Lots of Food on February 7th. Again, learn more. Sign up to register for as many of these volunteer opportunities as you like at tinyurl.com orchards2020. Now, Tuesday evening is also uh, UofL Provost Forum on Presidential Succession. It's taking place at 5.30 online. A contentious political campaign, disputed results, lawsuits, protests, violence. The 2020 presidential election has been unlike any we've ever seen, and the controversy doesn't appear to be over. So what now? A panel of UofL political and legal experts will weigh in on the topic during this free virtual forum. Panelists will include Jasmine Ferrier 
Vice President for University Advancement and former Chair of Political Science, Eugene Mazzo, Visiting Professor at the Brandeis School of Law, and Political Science Chair and Professor Jason Gaines. The panelists will discuss legal issues, social media's role in the controversy, what to expect on Inauguration Day, and how current events could affect the incoming president's effectiveness. Brandeis School of Law Dean Colin Crawford will moderate the discussion. The provost is planning a second forum later this semester to explore economic volatility, social justice, and the COVID-19 pandemic, and other issues facing the new president in his first year. You can find the link to register for this event, which is Tuesday at 530 on the 12th at uoflalumni.org if you go under events at uoflalumni.org. Right after that, at 7 p.m., also online on Tuesday the 12th, it's the next Louisville Showing Up for Racial Justice monthly meetings, which have a new format. So from 7 to 7.30, they welcome new folks to go over the basics of what it means to fight racism in our community as a white person. And then uh, you can join them from 7.30 to 8.30 for a different topic to explore further. In January, the topic will be base building. It's a perfect meeting to attend, and we encourage you to invite one friend, family, family member, coworker, running partner, or anyone else you know, feel free to join at either 7 or 7.30. And you can find the link to register at bit.ly, B-I-T L-Y slash L-S-U-R-J meeting. That's B-I-T L-Y slash L-Surge meeting. And of course, as you just heard, coming up this Friday the 15th, the kickoff to the Kentucky Conservation Committee's annual meeting in 2021 Legislative Summit every Friday throughout the rest of January from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. You can join us for all three days. These inform- informative sessions will include a broad look at anticipated topics during the 21 Kentucky General Assembly, an overview of timely conservation issues, basic training on citizen lobbying, how to at navigate the session during the pandemic and an overview of environmental legislation filed to date. They'll also include an in-depth uh, session on two different topics, as we heard, land conservation and biodiversity on the 22nd. And then on the 29th, it'll be clean energy and climate change. Each session will include experts such as Misty Bowes from Wild Virginia, as you just heard today, uh, but also uh, it's bipartisan. So there'll be representatives from both sides of the Kentucky chain. Chamber, attending and participating in all three days starting this Friday, the 15th at 11 a.m. And you can learn more and register for free at kyconservation.org. Friday is also going to be UofL's annual maple tapping workshop. I'm so excited. Tis the season when it gets really cold at night and then warms up above freezing during the day. That is perfect time of year to tap your maple trees and make maple syrup. You can do it at any scale. You could do one tree in your backyard or you could do dozens of trees in a forest and make a whole lot of syrup. It's super easy and super fun. Great way to get out in nature in the winter. So come learn how to do it this Friday the 15th at noon. We'll be gathering in the new Garden Commons location at the University of Louisville. That is on the southwest corner of Strickler Hall or immediately east of the Speed Art Museum parking garage. And we'll be having a a little workshop there and then we'll walk across campus for five minutes to go uh, tap the trees at two different spots on campus. And you can come and learn about the process in general and help install these taps. And if you want to come back to campus, you're welcome to sign up to volunteer to help 
help empty buckets throughout the season. Please dress warmly so we can work outside and, of course, wear a mask and be pra- we'll be practicing physical distancing to keep safe during the pandemic. Our workshop leader is Dave Barker. He's been tapping trees uh, on campus and uh, adjacent to our Shelby campus. He lives out in Linden, making his own maple syrup in Louisville for years. So it's a great time coming out this Friday at noon at University of Louisville's Garden Commons. You can learn more at louisville.edu slash sustainability. And coming up Monday, January 18th, that is the application deadline for the Spring 2021 Neighborhood Institute put on by the Center for Neighborhoods. You can learn more and apply at centerforneighborhoods.org. It's a no-cost leadership education program designed to equip neighborhood leaders with skills and resources needed to initiate positive change in the community. It'll be taking place every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. for 12 weeks, and it's all virtual this year. Year. Applications close on January 18th because classes begin on January 28th. So if you want to learn more, go to centerforneighborhoods.org and uh, sign up by Monday. And one last thing to remind you about for this uh, season of the year, uh, and that is that there is an opportunity to submit your comments about the I-65 corridor through downtown Louisville and by the University of Louisville, the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet and the Kentucky uh, Indiana Regional Planning and Development Agency, or KIPTA, are conducting an I-65 corridor study from I-264 all the way to East Jefferson Street, and they're actively seeking public input, especially especially from those who use the corridor regularly or live by it. The study is going to identify short and long-term improvements that the state may use to further development and implementation. The list of improvement projects will be evaluated and prioritized based on transportation needs, environmental economic benefits and impact, benefit and cost ratios, safety, structural needs, existing conditions, and projects team and community input. So the public's encouraged to participate in this survey about your level of comfort in the corridor and priorities for it and to submit ideas for improving specific locations with respect to safety, bus, bike and pedestrian accommodations, environment, congestion, truck signage and more via their handy online comment map. You can access the survey and comment map along with some basic existing conditions data that's available to everyone for review through the study's story map. Now I've posted the link to that at facebook.com slash UofL sustainable, facebook.com slash UofL sustainable to find the link to bake your comments about the I-65 corridor through downtown Louisville. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Stay tuned. Lots of great stuff coming up and I'll be back in your ears again in one week's time. Stay well, my friends. My little love, Shady Grow, my darling, Shady Grow, my true love. Well, I'm going back to Harlem. Shady Grow, my little love, Shady Grow, my darling.